Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We have a couple things for us this morning. I want to jump right into it. The first one is, as you know, throughout this year of identity, we have been taking the first portion to talk a little bit about us as a family. What are we into? What do we like? What do we not like? What type of people do we want to be? Uh, I always think about it in terms of if anybody found out you were from Bridgeway out in the community, what would I want you to be known for, right? So I have another installment of that. I don't have a statement I'm going to read. I'm just going to talk through some practical points. But they all begin in the book of Philippians. Would you uh, take out your Bibles? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Philippians is, turn open your Bible in the middle, go to the right. And I'm going to say we're about page 981. Or 980, one of the two, if you want to grab that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. What I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you another portion of what we mean here at Bridgeway by our core value of loving generously. I want us to be known for our love for a couple different things. But any time I talk about our love issue, there's a possibility that some of you may receive it wrong. And you may think that we're just trying to say, listen, we need to be out there and everybody needs to be sweet and kind and loving and then a doormat. That we don't need to ever stand up for anything. We don't ever need to take uh, a, a bold stance on an issue or fix things in our society. Listen, our church believes very strongly in the concepts of justice. We believe very strongly in the idea of standing against injustice. So whatever you hear me say, what it should not resound in you is, oh, Bridgeway just says, if you just love everybody, everything's cool. You need to understand what we mean by loving everybody. And sometimes love is strong. Sometimes love is tough. Love always stands for truth. So there's going to be an element of that in everything that we say. But what I mostly wanted to talk to you about this morning is our attitudes of our hearts as we do these things. And really, where I'm going is we need to have servants' hearts. Amen? Let's go ahead and read this. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the heart of where I'm going. We'll keep keep going. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be hung on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are Christians. Christians, by definition, are mimics of Jesus Christ. Who, if there was anyone who ever had rights, if there was anyone who ever had the ability to shut other people down, if there was anyone who ever would be excused... As the king of all creation, walking around, telling everybody what to do, it should have been Jesus. And yet he came in the form of a servant and served other people. 
Therefore, our mandate here at Bridgeway is that we are servants through and through. So what does that mean? Well, let me be real, real practical for you. First of all, let's talk about what it means to think about other people before ourselves. What I'm looking for in our family is that if we are walking out with our groceries and someone else has their groceries and they can't seem to get their car door open, you stop what you're doing and you take care of them first. What I'm talking about is just practical loving on other people. I'm saying that although you have needs going on when you go into work, if someone else seems heavy in their heart, you put your needs aside and you minister to them and love on them first. What I'm saying is that you go on the back burner when it's healthy to do so and that you minister to the other people and put their interests before your own. That's what I mean. Number two. I mean, we need to leave our rights behind. Uh, Ever increasingly in our world, especially in America, there's this entitlement concept. Well, I have the right to this. I have the right to do this. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. All right. Let's say you do. Who cares? Yeah, you do. You just don't use them. Paul made it very clear in Corinthians that he said, I'm not utilizing my right to this he said i have the right over this one church who is stubborn he said i have the right to financial compensation i am not pushing that upon you because you're not ready for that i'm more interested in what's best for you than what's best for me we have to be very careful in trying to say we establish a right i have the right to whatever yeah you might but what does that have to do with it you don't utilize your rights You make sure that somebody else is taken care of and that you are a servant. Servants don't always argue for their rights. Now, if we're going to talk about political action, we're going to talk about using the right channels by which to have a voice, I believe all that is healthy and strong and good. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your own personal day-to-day activity. Number three, leave people better than when you found them. Leave people better off than when you walked up. Why? Because you're trying to duplicate Jesus. Jesus left people better off than when he arrived. And you're like, are you talking about just the healing stuff and all that? No, I'm talking about everybody. Even when he blasted the Pharisees, they were better off than when he arrived because now they know the truth. You understand what I mean? I'm saying that we need to be walking around this world and anytime you engage with someone else, their day should be better because a bridgeway person walked up. It means that that maybe it's something as simple as smiling, right? So so most of the time I'm smiling guy. Right? Which means that I pull up to the Starbucks drive-through window and I go, "Hey, So most people think I'm either mentally ill or I'm a salesman or whatever. You know what I mean? They're like, why are you smiling at me? What's wrong with you? But my goal is, is they probably had a lot of bad customers complaining about something. And I want to be the easygoing guy. I mean, when you pull up and you're just like, hey, how you doing? They're just like, oh, I'm doing all right. My job is to leave them better off at the drive-thru than before. When you're in a conversation, make sure that you listen deeply to what they're saying so they're better off. They've been able to unload something. Here's the problem where you might wrestle with this. 
if you have been trained or raised or your personality leans into the idea that everyone else is better off than you, you're going to wrestle with this because you think you're the underdog. So why would you want to bless somebody that already has more than you do? I need to tell you right now, please don't think that way. Now, here's where my personality and my being raised really helped me out. I don't know where this came from. I don't know if it was a biblical mindset. I don't know if it's from my mom and dad. I don't know who it was from. But I've always grown up thinking everyone around me is broken. And that I've always grown up thinking that how can I bless someone else? Because I always think maybe they had a hard time to their day. I don't know what that's all about. Maybe it's the people-pleasing part of me or whatever. But I want you to have this mindset that you look out at other people and you say, you need a blessing today. The Lord sent me, so I'm going to take care of you. That's the heart. Number four, we got to stop being so easily offended. Okay, we got to stop being easily offended. And, and here's what I mean. There are two different issues. One is being defensive and the other is being offended. Now, those are actually two different issues. They're both problems. I suffer heavy from the first one, okay? So I get very defensive. That is usually fear-based, okay? Which you're afraid something's going to go wrong, so you get super defensive, and you, you kind of do the puffer fish thing, right? When you're just like, oh, no, and you just blow up really big. Okay, I suffer from that, but we're not talking about that right now. We're going to talk about your problem, not my problem, all right? So this is not therapy, okay? The, the, the other piece is offended, which is actually pride-based. It's not fear-based, it's pride-based. It's the idea that how dare you treat me like that? Well, hold on, why not? Well, because I'm, you're what? That's the problem. What's your next statement? That somehow you think you're such a big deal that no one else should degrade you or treat you like that. Why is the offense so easy? How come we can't simply say, well, of course they would treat me like that. They're all kind of messed up. Why couldn't we say, you know what? Although I'm a nice person and I love the Lord and everything else, I'm sure I have my faults. They're triggering probably off some of that. What I'm saying is the whole idea that we immediately go, oh, how dare you? Where's that coming from? Servants aren't easily offended. So are we servant hearted or not? Are we humble or are we not? The only way you're ever going to know if you're humble or not is if someone doesn't treat you right. Because if everyone's treating you right, you have no idea if you're humble or not. You keep pretending you are, but you'll really find out if someone disrespects you. Ah, interesting. Number five, we need to love when it's difficult to love. Jesus said, You keep thinking you're going to get extra credit because you're nice to people who are nice to you. Everyone does that. That's no different than the world. You keep thinking that you, oh, uh, that person, I, I, I gave to them. Yeah, because they're always giving to you. You're getting something out of the deal. That doesn't count. If you want extra credit, you have to love when it's actually difficult to love. You don't just love nice people. You love jerk people. Why? That's the Christian thing to do. It means you're pressing beyond what's normal. Of course, when your flesh and your heart and your your body is screaming out going, I want to punch that person in the throat. 
You submit amen, brother. Now I'm getting a little bit of feedback. You submit that to the Lord and you're going, Lord, whoa, 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 whoa. That person's really, really hard to love. I don't like them. And the Lord's like, well, I don't really either. No, I'm just kidding. He won't say that. I'm t- <laughs> no, he doesn't say that. I'm kidding. It's then you submit that to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, help me to love. Because when you're trying to find a way to love them, that's a Jesus style. And that ends up setting off an alarm that God's in your midst. And then finally, let's make sure that we are not about hypocrisy or judgment, that we're about wisdom. And what I mean about that is that servants don't run around trying to find fault with everybody else. Just take care of your business and figure out if you see a fault out there, what can you do to bring change to it that's healthy? Because what happens is somehow we become either the moral police or we become the cynical or we become the judgmental where we're spending all our time going, you don't line up, you don't line up, you don't line up, you don't line up. That's not the attitude of a servant. A servant walks in and goes, this is broken, this is broken, this is broken. How can I help? Now, understand the end result is the same in the sense of change needs to occur. I get it. What I'm saying is, what's your heart in the process? Do you think that you're above everyone else or are you there to make it better? That's really the heart of what I'm trying to say. So for Bridgeway as a family, may we be servants, not just in our homes, which is critical, not just in our church, which is important, but out in our community, loving on everybody. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Three people thought that was awesome. All right. That was four. I like the early adopters. Thank you. I want to change course here, and I want to talk about our second installment in this Ecclesiastes series. Would you turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes? We are in page, I would say, 553. We are in chapter 2, verse 1. We are continuing the depressing saga of Solomon. Now, as you know, we're going to dig in and we're going to understand what he fully said. We're going to understand how heavy that weight is. And then we're going to bring the brightness of Jesus Christ into the scenario. That's what is so beautiful about this series. But first, we must fully understand the significance, the weightiness, the heaviness of what he is trying to say. And he is continually telling us that without God, if we just look at this world, There's nothing that it has to offer us. I want to begin by giving you the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It was handed to you at the front door. And it is this. Temporary things can't fill eternal voids. Temporary things, stuff, cannot fill eternal voids in your heart. And what I mean by this is let's go back to a basic principle. I don't know how many of you have dealt with little ones, probably a lot of you, but uh, have you ever used what's called a shape sorter, right? That's a little plastic ball, and you try to put the, the square peg in the square hole and the round peg in the round hole, and, it, and it's kind of a little ball, and you can stretch it apart, and all the blocks fall out, and you put it back in. All right, what that is telling the children, what that is telling anyone in rehab is 
there's appropriate places for appropriate things. Now, here's how it works with us. If the hole in your heart says, I want to be loved for who I am, warts and all. I want to be able to screw up. I want to be able to be angry. I want to be able to be flawed. I want to be able to be all of me in my nastiness. And I want you to keep sticking with me and loving me and caring about me. If that's what your void says, you will not be able to fit it with another person because that's not a person sized hole. That's a God sized hole. So if you keep trying to grab people and shove them in there, it's not going to fit. And you're going to get more and more frustrated. Why? Because people can't do that. Only God does that. God is the one that can run with you. God's the one that goes beyond what people can do. God is the one that understands you and more than you understand yourself. God is the one that can eternally keep you a picture of you in his mind as that soft little baby he created and not the monster you have become. You understand what I mean? Is that God is the one that can go the nth degree. It's Jesus Christ who loved us while we were yet sinners. He died for the ungodly. That Jesus is the only one that can do that. People will always fail you because they weren't built for that. They don't know how to do that. They're so worried about their own drama they can't even handle yours. So if we keep going out and doing the bar scene, looking for someone to fill us up, it's not going to fly. If we keep thinking that a relationship is going to solve all our problems, it's not going to work. We got to get the right blocks in the right hole. Otherwise, we just get frustrated. So we got to get the main thing back to the main thing and allow the things that are supplement to do what they were built to do. That is the heart of what I'm going to share with you today. So let's dive into God's word. We begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, side note, I've been listening recently to a teacher who's super mellow. And it's cool. He just kind of goes up and every time he talks, it's kind of like quiet and mellow and everything. It's all deep. And so every time I always think, you know, I'm going to try that one week. And it never works. I get all hyped up and spazzed out. I don't know what's wrong with me. So anyway, I'm just letting you know. It's not like I don't realize this, okay? I still have the kind of, how do I do the cool vibe? And it just doesn't work for me. So I'm letting you know that. All right, praise God. All right. (laughs) There there are so many other cool speaking styles. I just, I only got one. All right, let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. Solomon, the character of Solomon, he says this. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's madness. And of pleasure, what use is it? I even searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, find fine happiness in alcohol. My heart was still guiding me with wisdom, of course. It was all an experiment. But I wanted to know how to lay hold on folly. Meaning just go all in, this is all about me, lose control, just try to go all in for the party scene, stuff like that. Till I might see what was good, what was worthwhile and profitable for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. All right, what are we seeing? 
Solomon sets out, or the character of Solomon sets out on an intentional experiment to try to find anything in this life that brings him benefit. Remember, what he is not looking for is, is this fun? Does this feel rewarding? What he's looking for is net gain. He's trying to say at the end of the day, when everything is done, am I better off as a person? Am I more healthy? Am I more advanced? Is there greater meaning and value and purpose in me after doing this activity? And the only place he's examining is in this world apart from God. Apart from God, is there anything in this world that can bring me value? And he's finding that he can't find anything. So he said, I'm going to try the happiness thing. I'm going to go try the party thing. I'm going to go try the laughing thing. I'm going to go try the fun thing. Because everyone, you know, man, when you look out there and you're bummed out and you see people at a restaurant and they're all sitting around and they're like, oh, right? They have all this stuff. And you're like, man, they seem like they're having a blast. Why do I feel all sad with my fettuccine? Right? And you're like, man, maybe I should try that. Maybe I should go over in their team. And they're all having fun and their whole lives must be easy. He said, all right, so I went all in. I'll go in and just give myself everything I could possibly want. And let's see if fun will ultimately bring me value. He said, he said, I even went into the whole thing about, let's just try it. Alcohol was there to cheer the heart. Man, what if I just do a lot of cheering? Now, let me, let me explain something about alcohol and the Bible. Uh, the Christian church, especially the modern-day Christian church, we are really weird about alcohol. We like swing to the pendulum all over the place. Can we please balance out a little bit more in the middle? And here's what I mean. In the Bible, wine is known as a good thing. As a matter of fact, it's the common metaphor of the blessing of God. Is that for the Jewish people, he's like, man, there's going to be a time when you guys are going to have new wine. It's going to be awesome, blah, blah, blah. He always talks about it as positive. The only time it starts going negative is when we get a hold of it. We wreck everything awesome. It's kind of like God's like, you know what? This is the whole thing. You're supposed to just have fun and, and chill out and just be with each other. And it's supposed to be a healthy thing. But no, we have to distort it. We got to drink too much and then we got to go this way and then everything turns bad and we blame God for it. All right. Wine's a good thing. God made it. Awesome. We're the problem, not the wine. Are we all clear on that? All right. Praise the Lord. So. He says, yeah, I went that route and everything else. And he said, and I'm finding out, is there anything in this short little life that we live that will bring me value? Now, is our life short? If you're older than 13, life is going really fast. Would you agree with me? Okay, so all the kids that are with us here, they're like, dang, not only is life going slow, this guy is talking forever. Man, if I could just, mom, can I have my cell phone back, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So... But if you're older than 13, life is flying by and you keep going, man, what month is it? Man, how did I get, I don't feel this old. What is going on, right? And everything's just humming by, right? It's pretty fast. Let's say, for example, and I'm going to be Mr. Positive and Optimist. Let's say we all live to 100. What is 100 years in light of eternity? It's embarrassingly weak, right? Oh, I don't know. There's forever and then there's your little 100 years. Okay, in this tiny little time, is there any benefit to it? So I start thinking to myself, why are we here? Why are we still here? Now, I'm not like, why is humankind here? I'm saying, what is this life all about? It's weird. 
because we come from God and we're going to God. We're coming from someone who has no beginning and no end, and we're going to end up in eternity. Why are it? We're in a little weird rest stop. A hundred year long rest stop. What in the world are we doing here? Why? This is, does not it seem very odd to you? Because a lot of people guess, well, we're here because of evangelism. We've got to share our faith. That's dumb. Here's why it's dumb. Because if we're talking about results, all God has to do is rip open the sky and go, I'm here. And we all go, ah, and we all become Christian. So this whole lame, like, you tell a neighbor, you tell a neighbor, kind of like this little Ponzi scheme thing we got going on. You share Jesus, so you share Jesus. It's my downline. I mean, you know, multi-level evangelism. It's slow and ineffective. So I don't think that's the point. What are we doing here? Um, it seems like everything's better in heaven, right? And people are like, well, we're here to worship. Uh, actually, when you see Jesus for who he is, I think your worship's going to be way better than you singing oceans. <laughs> right? So why are we here? And I'm thinking the, there has to be something here that we don't have there. And, and the answer has to be it's better for God because he's the central character in the story. So here's my view. I believe it has nothing to do with results. I think it has everything to do with process, pathway, and glory. Here's why. I think in this short, limited time of which God is not willing for us to suffer too long, I think there's a unique opportunity to bring glory to God because we can't see him, we can't feel him, and we are pushing through and we're saying, I choose God even when it's hard. I think that's a little snippet in the great existence, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity to glorify God in front of all of supernature. You understand what I mean? I think that's what life is actually about. Hmm. So he moves on in verse 4, and he said, so here's my experiment. Here's what I did. If you're going to say you went all in, what do you mean? Well, I started with great projects. I wanted to build something so that I made a mark on this planet. So I made great works, verse 4. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So he went off on this whole idea of making stuff and shaping the world, bringing his dominion over it and scooping it together and saying, I was creative and I made this. Did that ultimately fulfill him? Let's say we take it away from God, just doing stuff on the planet, does that bring value? All right, so that, that was the big issue for him. Now, what was interesting is, if this is Solomon, or somebody referring to Solomon, it's weird, they don't even mention, and he created the greatest temple to God on all the planet Earth. Doesn't even mention all the other stuff that he did. Because if you read back about Solomon, he was brilliant in horticulture and viniculture. He was brilliant in botany. He was brilliant in a whole bunch of things. And he built and designed and designed and had all kinds of cool stuff. He said, so that was the first thing I tried. Let's just do stuff. Let's be significant. Then verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Now when he says slaves, he means a lot. At one point, the Bible records that he had 30,000 Hebrew slaves. Now, that's not counting non-Hebrew slaves. Hebrew slaves are his own people. But you got 30,000 of your own crew. That's a lot. 
Now, let me be crass about this because I think I need to tie it into today's world. We have such a, a, an anti-desire uh, for slavery, praise God, that we don't want to talk about it that way. So let me put it in modern-day vernacular. In that day, slaves were appliances. They made life easier. Hey, I don't want to wash the dishes, so I got a dishwasher. Hey, I don't want to do that, so I got a refrigerator. Hey, I don't want to do that, so I got a mixer. Hey, I don't want to do that, so I got a... They're appliances. He had 30,000 at least at one time of his own people appliances so he said i did everything to make my life easier they all built stuff for me i could advance as fast as i wanted because they did all the work for me so i made my life as easy as possible then he says this i also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in jerusalem I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He said, I had foreign tribute coming in. I had taxation coming in and I was loaded. And he was. If we're going to talk about the real Solomon, we're going to talk about, listen to this verse. Every day his kitchen staff prepared this. This is crazy. Ten fat oxen, 20 pasture fed cattle, 100 sheep. Deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl every day. That's a lot of food. Now, I mean, okay, let, let's be practical because I just read that. Have you ever seen an oxen? They're big, right? Have you ever seen a fat oxen? They're bigger. So this guy, I mean, it's like these big, massive cow-looking things, and every day they prepare 10 of them. But that's not enough. We got to get some big old dairy-looking cows, and we got 20 of those. Let's make sure to prepare all the cow. I mean, do you understand that, that for some people, when you raise beef, and they end up having like a side of beef or whatever, and it lasts, like the cow lasts a really, really long time, every day, boom, all this stuff. Why? Now, did he have a huge uh, work service and all that? Yeah, 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 yeah. But my point is, notice the opulence. Lots and lots of money. All right. What else? He said, I got singers, both men and women. What does that mean? It means he went into the arts. The arts were pretty well limited back then. And he had men and female singers for recreation, entertainment, banquets, stuff like that. Why does he mention male and female? Because in Israel at that time, mostly there was just an all-male Levitical choir. He's like, no, 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 we weren't doing the whole religious thing. This was all about fun. So I got entertainment. I went into the music industry, and I served it to myself. What else did he get? And many concubines, better translated harems, the delight of the sons of man. Now, that's offensive to all women. I get it. He said, I got a lot. Now, if we're going to talk about Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had 1,000 committed partners. I don't know what happened outside of that. Dude, this guy's crazy. I mean, this is the whole idea that whatever he wanted, he went ahead and got. And he said, and so I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, meaning I had all the power and fame Ever. There is nowhere to climb up the corporate ladder beyond king. Right? You're not going to get a promotion. 
You are it. You determine whether people live or die. You run the entire nation. Everything that comes in that's good, you get first dibs on it. He's like, I was at the top of everything. So how did that work out for me? That was my experiment. Pick it up in verse 9. Also, my wisdom remained with me, meaning I knew what I was doing. I wasn't going mad. I wasn't going, you know, just falling apart. I was purposeful in everything that I did. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. That's called purposeful hedonism. For my heart found pleasure in all my work, and this was my reward for all my hard work. Meaning, man, all day long I told slaves what to do and they bolt cool stuff, so I deserve a break. What? Anyway. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing gained under the sun. Everything in our advertising in this world says that use our product and you'll be happier. It's a lie, right? I mean, the way that they go extreme, right? If you use our deodorant, you will have more friends. And they will all be good looking. Oh, all right, fantastic. I've changed deodorant, it doesn't work. Everything is about, oh, and it's going to be great, and if you only just had more pleasure, if you only got to get away more, if you only got to do more vacations, if you only got to own more stuff, if you only got this, if you only got that, and they keep saying that, so he goes, I went all in, and there was no net gain. Now, there was reward. What I put in, I got back out. I'm not telling you that that's not true. As a matter of fact, it was really fun. I'm telling you there's no gain. At the end of the day, I did not advance forward. There was nothing for me. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for something to buy my time. I'm looking for something to make me better. And I can't find it without God. It's just not here. There is a proper way to engage with pleasure. And that's with God, not without God. But he was trying to look for it without him. He's going, it's not there. Also, let's be very clear about sin. We, make, we, we really do our kids a disservice when we tell them that sin is not fun. Please don't do that. If your kids grow up and you keep going, there's nothing there, there's nothing there, don't do that, no, that's not fun, blah, blah, blah. If you keep having that attitude, the minute they go to college, they're going to come up with one of two concepts. Either your definition of fun and their definition of fun are drastically different, or number two, you're a liar, which you are. Here's what you need to tell them. Of course it's fun. It will just destroy you. The cost is too high. And it's not good for you. It's not healthy. But of course it's fun. Because the minute they walk into it and they go, wait a second. This is totally fun. Then they're going to think they want more of it. You're going, no, no, no. Let me tell you up front what you're walking into. Yeah, it's absolutely fun for a super short amount of time. And then there's devastation. And you're not going to recognize that at the time. You're going to think, no, no, no. This is awesome. I want more of this. You don't understand the price. So yes, it is fun. The price is absolutely not worth it. That's why God said, we're no go on that. But at least be honest with them so they don't get blindsided. That's not fair. We keep thinking it's a great idea to keep them away from everything. How about just being honest about everything? That would be helpful. Interesting. I'm going to read this quote to you. Uh, it's by Philip Ryken, the guy I read 
last time, and he writes a commentary on this. I thought it was fascinating. He said it better than I could. He said, most Americans today are richer than most people in the history of the world. Yet in spite of our material prosperity, or maybe because of it, we still suffer from poverty of soul. The taste of pleasure has grown our appetite for this world beyond satisfaction. Meanwhile, we are still searching desperately for meaning in life. Like Solomon, we have ample opportunity to indulge many sinful and selfish desires. In fact, maybe Solomon would envy us. Generally speaking, we live in better homes than he did, with better furniture and climate control. We dine at a larger buffet. When we go to the grocery store, we can buy almost anything we want from anywhere in the world. We listen to a much wider variety of music. And as far as sex is concerned, the Internet offers an endless supply of virtual partners providing a vast harem for the imagination. So are we satisfied or do we still want more? And yet we're standing on the pile of all that stuff, longing. It's not going to work. Stuff doesn't satisfy. Fun without God won't gain you anything. And our problem is we keep divorcing God from our fun. Man, if I really want to have fun, I got to leave Jesus at home and then I got to go get it and then I'll come back and hang out with my Jesus. Huh. So what's his point? The world's got nothing. Is he right? Yes. So what does Jesus say? God doesn't hate pleasure. God created it. He just doesn't want us to settle for a weakened and toxic version of it. We keep settling for too little. We are all obsessed with the little self-destructive things and God's not going to sign off on it. He's going to go, that's not it. I know you think it's fun. All I'm telling you is this is destroying you. So no, the answer is no. I want deeper fun. I want better fun. I want more holistic fun. I want something that actually ministers to your soul and it's a blast. And at the end, you don't end up broke. You don't end up with an STD. You don't end up feeling like you're suicidal. You don't end up with all this garbage. I want something more than that. Stop settling for less. The way that God looks at fun is he looks at things like this. So you finally get a bunch of your friends around, you're hanging out, you had a meal together, and it's starting to get a little bit later in the night, and everybody's loopy. Everybody's tired from the day, but we all start laughing. And we're laughing and we're telling stories, and you laugh to the place where you have to excuse yourself to use the restroom, you know, that's kind of laughing thing. And you're just having a blast and you're reminding people of different things. You're telling stories and you're cracking jokes on each other and you're having all this fun. And at the end of the night, you feel more full than when you arrived. God goes, yeah, that's that's better. He's not saying, man, if you only were more like a monk. Right. I mean, that's how we always think about it. God's idea of fun is like chess in a monastery. That's, that's not right. That's not right. He just wants deeper fun, better fun. So why aren't things fun enough in this world without God? Because we've created fantasy to such a degree that that actually doesn't exist. Uh, I'll give you an example. We, we 
have always told ourselves that there's magic vacation lands that where you go to them in the magazines, you have the most beautiful vacation ever. And yet when you get there, you find out you're still there, so it's kind of a drag. <laughs> where are those people in the magazine? They look very happy. You're still arguing with your family and your spouse and you're having all that. Okay. We, we create so much fantasy about the idea that when we finally get that, it's going to fulfill and then we're always disappointed. Why? Because it's not real. And we've elevated our fantasy and we've talked amongst ourselves and talked on TV and everything of hyping and hyping and hyping and hyping to such a degree that actually that does not exist anywhere and you'll never find it. You were never supposed to. And so we keep being disappointed, and it takes away the thankfulness and gratitude of our hearts. Paul said, I've learned the secret to being content. Uh, he mentioned both in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Philippians 4. He said, godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, when you put God in the mix, everything begins to get brighter. And it starts having value. He said this. It's really kind of weird. Second Corinthians twelve ten. He said, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. OK, that sounds miserable to me. He's like, man, I'm totally content with having a horrible life. Why would he say that? Because he has his priorities right and he's on God's agenda. So God loaded him up with resources for what God asked him to do, not what he wanted to go do. So many times we look in our backpacks of life and we're like, really, God, this is it. This is all you're giving me. And he's like, well, actually, it's more than enough for what I asked you to do. You're like, yeah, but what about all the side trips I want to take? Uh, you're right. I didn't pack for those. That wasn't the point. Well, I want to go over here and I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to build this kingdom and I want to do. Well, you're right. I did not give you any of that. And when you keep using my normal stuff for that and then you end up empty, then you keep coming back to me saying I'm not giving you enough. How about just doing what I asked you to do, and you're going to find out I'm giving you overage. Wow, that's different, huh? Jesus tells a story about a guy that was super wealthy, and he was like, dang, I'm so wealthy, I don't even have a big enough place to store my stuff. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to break those barns down and build bigger barns. Then I can store all my stuff and then I'm going to shut out the world and it's going to be all about me I'm just going to get hammered and lay around smoke pot, whatever and i'm going to do my own thing And god goes well, that's fascinating because you're going to die tonight oops awkward What was this whole point? Okay, that's not the point of more stuff How do I get more stuff? So I insulate cut everyone else out ignore everyone else and just live off all my stuff and make it all about me That's not life and when you die, you figure that out. But why do we really have to wait till that moment to figure it out? Why can't we figure it out now? Hmm. God isn't broke. He's just wise and good. God isn't broke. He's just wise and good. So many of us were constantly going, Lord, you're always holding out on me. You're holding out on me. You never give me enough. You never give me enough. And we have this whole scarcity concept. God, you must either be not good or else you're totally poor. He's like, no, I'm actually just smarter than you. Oh, okay. So what does the Bible say? Get stuff in its right priority. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where everything falls apart, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where it matters. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. What's his point? When you get God and his stuff in the right place, then everything else falls in line. As long as you don't have God in the center and you have a supplement appetizer side thing as your main dish, you're going to feel empty. Only when the main center is full does the rest make sense. For example, if your heart is complete, then you can enjoy people and not consume them, right? Only when you are healthy and steady can you engage in conversation appropriately without trying to need, need, need. Only when God takes care of your ultimate future by saving you in salvation can you then have that meaning imported, that grace poured in, that love poured in, where you can turn around and actually be a person to have a relationship with? Everything in this world was meant to be a cherry on top, not the meal. So we keep reversing those things and going, that's all there is? Yeah, because that's not what it was for. Just use it for what it was for. Friends were supposed to be a supplement. A spouse was supposed to be a supplement. What? To God. In entertainment was supposed to be a supplement. Money was supposed to be a supplement. Everything was supposed to be extra if God is in his rightful place. Then it starts being fun. Have you ever had these times when you had a, a, a really good meal and then they bring out the dessert that you paid like 14 bucks for and it's super tiny? And you're like, dang it. Well, it's good because I'm totally stuffed and I couldn't eat a lot more, but this isn't $14 worth. And then you start trying the little baby dessert and you're like, mm, best stuff I've ever had, right? And it's just like vanilla ice cream or something. And you're nibble, 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 nibble. And you're just like, this is so awesome, right? Mostly because you didn't make it. That whole idea that you've already been full and there's a little something. Imagine if you walked in completely starving and all there was was this little tiny dessert in the middle of the table. And you're like, seriously? Well, yeah. It wasn't supposed to be the meal. It's supposed to be the extra stuff. That's all this life can offer you is a little extra stuff. And when you have God in it, it's way better. Let me finish with these final thoughts. We need to live our lives thankful for what we have. This is another one of those benefits of my personality and how I was raised. I don't feel like God owes me anything. I never have. I always feel like everything is extra because I'm kind of like, well, first of all, I know me. I know me up here and I don't deserve anything. I mean, it uh, doesn't matter. We won't get into that. That'll just depress you. What I realize is, ever, I mean, it's really all about God. So why do I get all the treats? Why do I get anything? I mean, all this time, every time I go home and I'm looking around at me, I'm always impressed that there's stuff there. I don't deserve any of that stuff. Here's something fascinating to me. Running water. What we should have is hearts that are so impressed that when we turn on the little lever thingy, water comes out you're like come on seriously do you know how many people in the world don't have that and all we do is complain oh it tastes a little a little minerally 
I, I got to change my filter. Okay, because of our mindset, God is ripped off of gratitude and thankfulness, which the Bible says we should have every day about everything. Why? Because it's a present. Running water, a car to drive, a television, a cell phone. These are huge. These are extras. The whole idea that you ate something different yesterday than you're going to eat today, the majority of the world does not have. They're going to have the same beans they had yesterday. Why aren't we joyful about it? Why isn't there a constant, God, you are so sweet to me. You give me above and beyond. Lord, why are you lavishing on me? Why would you even allow me to be in this environment? This is ridiculous. God, I'm laying down on this bed and there is one. Man, I mean, there's so many things where are you on a little uh, flat thatch thing you made yourself in the bottom of a mud hut? No, you're not. You actually, your stuff has squishy and has give to it. That's pretty awesome. Where did our thankfulness go? Where did our gratitude go? Somewhere we lost it. The world ripped it off. So let's regain it. Let's get our head back in the game and thank God for what he's given us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. In our moment of clarity, we want to say, yes, you are awesome. You are a wonderful providing God, that you are an amazing shepherd. And Lord, you did not give us a bunch of stuff so we could build bigger barns and be more selfish. But Lord, you kept saying, hey, can we share this stuff? Can we share this stuff so that other people can be blessed and they would worship you and glorify you? But right now, God, we need to change our hearts. We need to be able to put you back in the mix, right in the center of where you deserve to be and begin to utilize the world appropriately. Father, bring back satisfaction and contentment back into our hearts that we might have hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. You said, enter your courts with thanksgiving in our hearts and praise on our lips. And so we want to say, you have blessed us. You have given us more than enough. That God, that we are spoiled, that we are beyond, and that you are giving us abundance and abundance and abundance. And so, Lord, we want to tell you thank you thank you thank you oh god forgive us for our grumbling hearts forgive us for our selfish and limited view and just refresh us just wash over us to open our eyes to see the blessings all the way around us god even as we get into our cars we just take a moment and realize what we have god thank you for our families Thank you, Lord, for our homes. Thank you for our pets. Thank you, Lord, for our jobs. Thank you, Lord, for all the goodness that you have surrounding us and the beauty of your trees, the beauty of the water. God, the incredible sky, the marvelous seasons that rotate around us. And so, God, we just want to praise you. You are a good God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We have our prayer team longing to pray with you. Come on up.